This chair is reserved for Matthew. Matthew is an individual who is benefiting from the system. Uh, he's partnering with power. And as a result of that, um, doesn't see the problem, doesn't see any problem. He's not just benef benefiting from it, he is flourishing in it. But seated across from him is Simon. Simon is an activist. He's a zealot. He, he's on the other end of the spectrum. The system isn't working at all, and it needs to change. And for Simon's perspective, it needs to change by any means necessary. In 2020, Matthew and Simon would not be friends on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Snapchat, on TikTok, on whatever the heck else there is. In fact, they would not see the world as the chairs are this way. They would be completely facing in different directions. One is maybe right, one is maybe left. And yet, Matthew and Simon are found in Matthew chapter 10, verses 3 to 4. Jesus invites Matthew, a tax collector who has partnered with Rome in oppressing the Jewish people, to be a disciple. And Jesus invites Simon, not Peter, there's another Simon disciple, Simon the Zealot. And for three and a half years, he actually teaches them, no, no, Matthew, you're wrong. And actually, no, no, Simon, you're wrong. And the goal isn't that you meet in the middle. Jesus actually says, I'm going to actually put you in relationship with me. Learn of me. There's a completely different way. And I'm going to put you in relationship with one another for three and a half years so you can work this out in the messy work of reconciliation. The series that we're in is not that, that Ottawa needs to become more like us. The series that we are in is that everybody in Ottawa needs to become more like Jesus, including us. It isn't an either or. It's not a Matthew and a Simon. It is all of us in this place saying, Lord, would you move? Whether you're here or whether you're at home online, Jesus said to Matthew and he said to Simon that to be reconciled, both of you are going to have to die to something. Forgiveness is a significant step, as we talked about a few weeks ago, but it isn't the only step in seeing biblical reconciliation. Reconciliation is only possible when we fully take each step that we need to take. And sometimes the step is an apology. It is asking for forgiveness. And sometimes the step is making restitution, which sets the table for making reconciliation possible. Within the Old Testament, there are principles like this. In Acts chapter 22, verse 1, it says, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and he kills it or sells it, 
He shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Don't tell me why there was injustice against ox and sheep. I don't know why one was worth five and one was worth four. All I know is that there was not just, hey, go over to your neighbor. Like, look, I, told, I took your ox, I took your sheep, I, I killed it and ate it, or I sold it. Sorry about that. There's a principle of, no, 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 you have to make wrong. What happened was wrong, and you need to make it right. You have to make restitution. In Exodus 20, that same chapter, 22 verse 5 says, If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beasts loose, and it feeds in another man's field. He shall make restitution, there's the word again, from the best of his own field and of his own vineyard. So once again, it's not going over saying, I am so sorry that my cattle got out and grazed and absolutely destroyed your vineyard, destroyed your field, destroyed your way. I'm, I look, I'm really sorry about that. An apology is a step, but the man also for the wrong and that he was responsible for had to make restitution. In fact, in the Old Testament, Every seven years, you had to let the land rest. There's something about Sabbath. Every 50 years, to break the back of inequality and poverty. There was a year of Jubilee where debts were canceled, so there was not these injustices that just grew ad infinitum without check and without ever being engaged. See, these things we see all in the language of Scripture, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. It is why when Jesus sees a man by the name of Zacchaeus, and he goes into his house, and by going into his house, there is this moment where Zacchaeus experiences the kindness and the love of God, and in experiencing the kindness and the love of God, because remember, Jesus isn't like God, Jesus is God. And so experiencing the kindness and the love of God, it so transforms his heart that he experiences a moment of salvation, but he's still under the law, and so Zacchaeus says very much, Lord, behold, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. He is saying to everybody who is grumbling, because Zacchaeus was also a tax collector. And he said, in plain view, today salvation has come to this house. Salvation did not come to the house of Zacchaeus because he was willing now to give away half of his goods, nor because he was going to restore it fourfold, because that's a salvation by works. Under the law, yes, he was engaging. No, no. It is God's kindness, as I said a moment ago, that leads us to repentance. And so Jesus absolutely lavishes love and grace and mercy on Zacchaeus and in such a way that his heart is transformed. And when his heart is transformed, he is now willing to do what mere moments before he was unwilling to do, and he's about to make restitution. But here's the challenge of reconciliation. Restitution in Zacchaeus taking these steps of restoring fourfold or giving away half of his goods to everybody that he has wronged. As a tax collector, it's a good list of people that he's wronged. He can take a step of restitution, but he cannot alone reconcile the relationship because for the one that he has taken advantage of, for the one that he has wounded, for the one that his injustice has affected, they also at some point must release forgiveness in his changed behavior. Here's what's true about reconciliation. Every single one of us, whether it is victim or perpetrator, every single one of us have a step to take in the story of reconciliation. And every one of us are required and called by God to take 100% of the step that we're called to take, but we cannot take 100% of the steps that need to be taken. And it's why it's the tension and the hard work of reconciliation that you can do everything that God asks you to do, and a relationship still remains unresolved. 
And so into this space today, I'm talking again, not on a systemic level, I'm talking on an individual level. A systemic level would require a different talk at a different time. But in the journey of forgiveness, at some point I have to see that what I have been forgiven of from God and then from there release forgiveness to others. In the journey of repentance, it is me, it is you, it is I, it is us. It is being us willing to not only see the wrong that we have done, but the right that we have failed to do. Both things require repentance. In the story of the prodigal son, there is a father with two sons. One is lost in a very traditional way that he rebels against the father. He takes the father's inheritance and he sins in a way that brings pleasure. He sleeps with prostitutes. He drinks what he wants to drink, does what he wants to do, lives his life and comes to the end of himself. It's a very typical rebellious story that we would all understand or maybe partake in our own hearts and lives. Maybe you've done that in a season. But there's also another son and he's a, the older brother. He never leaves home, but his heart is nowhere close to the father and he is absolutely bound by his own self-righteousness. The younger brother needed to forgive, ask repentance for what he has done, and the older brother needs to repent for the right that he didn't do. Both are in a place needing the story of repentance. And the truth is that I confess my sin, and because God is good, he is faithful and he is just to forgive me and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. End of the story. No, sorry, it isn't. Here's the thing. When you and I look at a bloodstained cross, do you know what we're looking at? We are looking at a finished, complete, perfect work. Nothing more can be added to it. Which means that anyone, anywhere, anytime, he is as close as the mention of his name. Anybody who turns their heart to Jesus, confesses their sin, he is faithful and he is just, as I said a moment ago, to forgive them and to cleanse them. Not from some, not from a little, but from all unrighteousness. Why? Because John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is a finished work. It is a complete work. It is not an incomplete work. It is not a progressive work. It is a work that is finished. It is complete. It's perfect. And it's done. So that anyone, anywhere, anytime can say to God, Lord, I, you know, I've sinned against you. Lord, would you save my heart? Would you redeem my heart? Would you rescue my heart? And in that moment, because he's a covenant-keeping God, he is absolutely faithful. It is a finished work, but the work of reconciliation between you and I, between humanity, is not a finished work. It is an unfinished work. It is a work that is in process of being completed. It is a work that you and I must engage one with another. It's not good enough for you and I to say, God, I, I, would you forgive me? Because here's the thing. When we transgress against one another, we haven't only offended God, we've also offended one another. We've also offended and been offended. There's been transgression that not only flows this way, but it also flows this way. And because none of us are God, none of us can forgive perfectly, none of us have this perfect sacrifice that you and I do the messy work of reconciliation, which sometimes is one step forward, five steps backwards, six steps forwards, 14 steps backwards, not because we want to, but in our own stuff, we get stuck. Lori and I, every single year, take one month, and I understand that we're blessed even to be able to do this. And so I share this story with um, that as a provisor. We understand. Uh, I love a good budget. Me and budgets are best friends. Budgets, like, make me feel secure. I love a budget. Doesn't mean I control the finances in our house. Not at all. But I love a budget. My family doesn't love that I love a budget, but I love a budget. And so one month out of every single year, we practice the spiritual discipline of frugality. You say, what is that? 
It's taking your budget and scrunching it down to the bare minimum that you can. And so we keep our tithe consistent, but at the end of a month, all the money that's left over, we take it as an offering. And it can be little or it can be a good sum, depending on how good we did that month. But we live as frugally as we can. And I understand what I said a moment ago. We're blessed to be even able to do this. I understand that. But at the end of the month, we take it and we, you know, take the funds, whatever they are, and we ask the Lord what he would have us do with them. And usually we invest them in a charity or we invest them into this or we invest them into that. And we always do it anonymously because it's not about a tax receipt. It's not about any of those things. It's literally just about, you know, being a blessing. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. And Lori came and said to me last year and said, I've been praying, which is always terrifying. (laughs) He said, I've been praying, and I feel like the Lord is asking us to take this sum and to anonymously sow it into a relationship where there is forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation needed. And my first response was this, no way. (laughs) They don't deserve it. Don't you know what they did to us? Don't you know what they're still doing? Don't you know that they are saying whatever they want to say and we're not saying anything? Don't they? All this stuff in my heart, and then I remembered, oh, shoot. I've been forgiven of a $6 billion debt, and now I have my hands around the neck of someone who owes me $12,000, like the story we read last week. And so in repentance before the Lord, in repentance before Lori, I confessed my sin. And we said, yeah, let's do it. And we did it. And I wish I could tell you that it was like this release. But even as we got the house and the envelope with the funds and we were about to drop them off at the door, like it was like Lori was about to take it. Like she's going to go see. And I was like, let it go. I'm like, nope. Nope. <laughs> let it go. And we stopped and we drove away. We took some time and we prayed. And we cried from our toes out. Not because of the funds, but because it's hard to be in unreconciled relationships. It's painful. So how did God use that step? Well, here's how I'll tell you he used the step. In the year since, it's gotten worse. How's that for a word of encouragement? But here's what I would say to you. You're not the Savior, so you can't control the outcome You're only responsible for the step of obedience that God is asking you to take. In the story that I'm telling, Lori and I are not the Savior. We are the ones in need of saving. Why are we taking this step? Because unforgiveness has a hold on our heart, and if it doesn't let go of our hearts, that thing is going to permeate every area of our lives. Every one of us maybe have a relationship right now where we're thinking about or that we're working through where there is things that need to be resolved. The journey of restitution is not only receiving and releasing, but it is in Christ rebuilding to the degree that you're able. And this process of restoration takes grace, it takes truth, and it takes time. It takes grace and it takes truth and it takes time. It takes grace and it takes truth and it takes time. Let me say it again. It takes grace, it takes truth. And you know what else it takes? Time. The deeper the wound, sometimes the greater degree of time. And sometimes we have to trust that God is working in the mess, that God is working in our midst, 
took three and a half years of Jesus being in the midst of Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. Three and a half years for them to show for him 24-7 with the God of the universe showing them there's a different way, there's a different way, different way. Patience and patience and patience and patience and patience. It takes time. It takes grace. It takes truth. And it takes time. Many relationships today are incomplete because a single person cannot walk all the steps of reconciliation alone. It's not possible. Each in a moment can express forgiveness and can be absolutely free. And so what I am not saying today is this, that you can ask for forgiveness or release forgiveness and in a moment, freedom is instantaneous. But you can be simultaneously free and there be subsequent steps that God needs, it asks you to take in order that there can be reconciliation. And then there are some of you today that you can't take reconciliation steps because the one who wounded you is no longer alive. Or it may not even be safe to do so. And you and I root our hope and our heart in a God who is a covenant-keeping God, who is the same God who said that he would send a Savior in the person of Jesus and fulfilled every promise and every bit of covenant is the same God in Revelation who says that one day I'm going to make all things, including this thing that is broken, brand new, and there will be no more tears, there'll be no more crying, there'll be no more pain. The former things have been done away. Behold, I'm making all things new. In the mess of human relationships, God is working Daniel Strickland, in her book, Better Together, says, Repentance is the acknowledgement of wrong done and an expressed willingness to make right. Without repentance, there can be no reconciliation. And right relationships require reciprocity to truly heal. Right relationships require reciprocity to truly heal. In this same book, Better Together, Danielle tells the story that I've told before here at Life Center. She had the privilege of visiting Rwanda. Again, you can read it for yourself. The book, she tells the story much better than I'm going to do right now. But she tells the story of visiting Rwanda. And if you know the country of the nation of Rwanda, experienced a tremendous genocide. And I say things today, and I know I'm in the mess and the pain of life. And I I don't say any of these things to bring additional pain. And I'm not going to plop through here like an elephant. I'm going to go sensitively as I can, but also as clear as I can. Because I do believe our freedom is often at, at stake to us engaging these moments. But she tells the story of visiting Rwanda, and she listened to the story. Now, imagine Matthew is not in this chair, and Simon's no longer in this chair. Now in this chair is Grace and John. John, when the genocide in Rwanda broke out, took the life of Grace's entire family. John is now in prison as he should be because of what he did. But Grace finds herself in a different prison. She's free, but she's not free. She is bound by unforgiveness, bitterness, hatred, and crippling fear. It would be very, very nice if you and I had a spiritual enemy in Satan who would leave us alone at our most vulnerable and painful time. I'm here to tell you that he doesn't care about you. He cares about you in one way. His purpose for your life is rob, kill, and destroy. 
Satan's plan for Grace's life was not only the destruction of her entire family, it was also the destruction of Grace. There is no love, there is no kindness, and there is no goodness in our spiritual enemy. He is simply a liar. And the lie that he tells us often is that unforgiveness is the path to healing. And it's a lie. Grace speaks of years of ministry, of therapy, of anger, of bitterness, of forgiveness, and crippling fear. John, in prison, speaks of an opportunity to participate in something called a reconciliation project. But in order for John, who has now given his life to Christ in prison, which, oh, the wonderful offense of the gospel. John has given his life to Christ in prison because it's a finished work. He's absolutely forgiven this way but he's got work to do this way. And to participate in the reconciliation project meant that John needed to fully admit his guilt, tell everything he knew, including the names of those who got away with it, because the country was interested in reconciliation, which includes justice. Not only repentance, but justice. Grace and John were given a plot of land and the materials necessary to rebuild two homes. And if you read their story, Grace says that I lived in fear. Both lived in fear, though different. They lived in fear of seeing one another on their new plot of land. Grace lived in fear of seeing John for very obvious reasons. And John lived in fear of seeing Grace because of the shame of what he has done. And so by accident, they would meet at the materials pile. And then over a number and period of months, they began to not only meet there by accident, but on purpose. And words that were few became words that were more. And over time, here's what John did. He not only asked forgiveness for what he had done, which he cannot repay, he cannot take back, There is no justice that will bring Grace's family back. But the right that he can now do, he begins to do. And John, before building his house brick by brick, rebuilds Grace's house. Because the work of reconciliation is often brick by brick. And when they were asked, John and Grace, How did John overcome his shame? And Grace, how did you overcome your fear? And how did this work of reconciliation even take place? They gave one word answers. Jesus and Jesus alone. Church, we are weak, but in Christ we are strong. We have come through a season where we as a church, the church global, has identified where we're weak and being authentic and being genuine, and this is so valuable. But the Word of God also says that when we're at our weakest, that we have access to a strength in Christ that is greater than anything that this world has to offer. And so I'm here to tell you today that in the unreconciled mess and pain of our hearts and lives, you may not have it in you, but it's okay. Christ has it in him. And if he lives in you, then you have him and a strength that is different. 
It doesn't make you better than anyone else, but it sure makes us different, have access to a different strength in our hearts and lives. See, we as followers of Christ in 2000, in the year, sorry, in the year 2020, January 2020, there was a study conducted um, in, I believe it was in Arizona. In 2020, in this year, 53% of evangelicals, Pentecostals, Charismatics, Catholics, and Protestants, 53% of Christians today do not believe the Bible is true. 53% do not believe God's Word is true. I'm not talking about the culture now. I'm talking about the church. And here's all I know. In about six or seven weeks, we are going to celebrate Christmas together. You know what Christmas we're celebrating? That we could not save ourselves. That Matthew couldn't save himself and Simon couldn't save himself. That Grace couldn't save herself and John couldn't save herself. That you couldn't save yourself and that I cannot save myself. That together we are celebrating that we needed God from the outside to do for us what we couldn't do on the inside. That we needed a savior, not just self-help. That I and you, you, us together... I don't know about you. I have lived experiences like you have lived experiences, and I need to listen, and I need to learn, and I need to seek to understand different lived experiences. Yes, 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 a thousand times yes, but as followers of Jesus at Life Center, here's what I want you to know. We need all the grace in the world to live, to live, to understand, and to engage lived experiences wholeheartedly. I'm not against that whatsoever, but I also know that there is absolute truth beyond your truth beyond my truth. That truth is not just moral relativism, whatever you think it is and whatever I think it is. I do believe that God's word is authoritative for our hearts and for our lives. I do believe in everything that is inerrant, that it's this outside source that brings judgment. Again, if it was not an outside source bringing correction to my heart, I would not have engaged in any of these messages because the pain of my heart is the same as the pain of your heart. People don't deserve forgiveness. But Jesus says, that only leads to death. There's a better way. There's a different way that you need saving. You need healing. You need redeeming. And it's not found this way. It's found this way. But once we find it this way, we pour it out this way. One of the stains of the body of Christ on the world today is that we are not a reconciling people when it's the only ministry that he has given us. We are more left and we are more right than we are are more upright. And Lord, would you just continue to rue our hearts with repentance? See, if there is forgiveness which is victim-based and there is repentance which is abuser-based, then there is the possibility of reconciliation. And there are some of you today, whether you're here or whether you're at home online engaging, there are some of you need today who need to trust Jesus enough to release forgiveness and say, how do I do that? We talked about it last week. You look longingly into what Jesus has forgiven you of until your heart is filled with gratitude. You don't have to feel ready to forgive to forgive. It's not a feeling, it's a step of faith. It is a step trusting that God's word is more true than what you feel. My feelings have been so true and they have brought me to stupid world. I'm serious. I have felt things that were so true that bring me only... You say, what's stupid world? Stupid world is a world where it's basically funhouse mirrors all around you and all that's reflected is a distorted image of yourself. 
Either we're self-righteous or woe is me. And both are also true, but it's this place of saying, Lord, I, I see through a glass dimly, so I'm going to trust the one who's Alpha and Omega, not at my little finite time. Come on, has anyone ever had a feeling that is so true that led them to stupid world? Can I see your hands, please? Hands up in the chat, please. Moment of humility. But there are some of you today who need to trust Jesus enough to ask forgiveness, to release forgiveness. Releasing forgiveness is not saying what happened to you is okay. It's not okay. Releasing forgiveness is saying, God, I am no longer their judge, jury, and executioner. I am going to trust them to you because you're righteous. You are a loving father and you are a righteous God. God is love and from his love flows holiness. From his love flows grace. And from his love flows wrath. And from his love flows truth. He's not all these dichotomous things. He is love and in his perfection he does these things. In our imperfection we cannot adjudicate these things well. We can steward them to the best of our ability. But we don't do them perfectly. God alone does. And there are some of you who need to trust Jesus enough to ask for forgiveness. To maybe stop self-justifying why you did what you did and ask for forgiveness. Maybe not for everything. Maybe yes, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. 95% of what happened is their fault. But ask forgiveness for your full 5%. Go 100% in your full 5%. And ask for forgiveness. There are some of us who need to trust Jesus because, again, as I said a few moments ago, reconciliation isn't possible. The person has passed away or they're really just not safe. They're unrepentive. They're unwilling to change, so they're still not safe. You can still be absolutely released. And you can trust that one day, again, God is going to make all things new, including your hurt, your harm, and your wounding. And there are some today who you're not the victim, you're the perpetrator. And the gospel is offensive. And the gospel doesn't overlook what you did at all. The gospel doesn't overlook what you're doing and the harm that you did and the harm you created. But you can be forgiven in Christ. But there's also some work that you need to do to rebuild something. You know, restoration doesn't always mean that you're restored to the position that you once had if you abused that authority. If a priest violates a child, restoration isn't the priest restored. Sometimes restoration is the priest understanding that I should never be around children again. It doesn't mean the work of forgiveness stops. It means sometimes understanding the depth of what I've done to see something truly restored requires me dying to something like Jesus brought Simon and Matthew. There's a lot of people going in these chairs this morning. Just stick with me. Brought them to say that you need to die. Both of you are going to have to die to yourselves. So if you're a perpetrator, there's work that you may need to do. The work of the cross is complete, but the work this way is incomplete.
followers of Christ, we are often very quick to applaud the story of the victim who releases forgiveness. But we also have to see the work that the perpetrator needs to do to rebuild where possible, respecting fully the boundaries of the one that they have wounded, not stepping anywhere over or near it. Rebuilding work looks like embracing, again, absolute truth versus just lived experience. Rebuilding looks like repentance. Another story in the Old Testament is David. David, it said at the times when kings go off to war, chose not to go off to war, he put himself in a position that he shouldn't, and as a result of it, he used his power as a leader not to serve but to be served. The antithesis of what we see in Jesus. And he rapes Bathsheba, takes advantage of her. She becomes pregnant, covers it up, ends up killing her husband, thinks he gets away with it, but the God who sees all things doesn't let him, let him get away with it. He's exposed, he's caught, he confesses. And these are his words. These are the words of a perpetrator who has reached repentance. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Transgression is where I have trespassed against someone. I have trespassed against Bathsheba. I have trespassed against her husband. I have wronged them. He is taking full ownership. He says, wash me of my iniquity. What is his iniquity? So first he confesses for the wrong that he does. Now he talks about his iniquity. Iniquity is behavior that is crooked, where he self-justified as a king that he could just take whatever he wants. Now he says, I've actually offended. My behavior's been crooked. So Lord, would you wash me thoroughly of my iniquity and cleanse me for missing the mark for my sin? And then he says this, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And then he says, then, after I have let the full work of repentance move in my heart and life, after I've let the full work of confession of iniquity, of doing the full work of rebuilding, the full work of all these things, after I've repented, I can't bring Uriah back the husband, but everything that I can do to rebuild, I will dedicate my heart to doing it. Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways. There are far too many people who want to teach transgressors the way without ever walking the way themselves. Our world is full of it. It's full of it. People who have not walked the way of transgression, people who have not walked the work of repentance or the work of rebuilding, telling everybody else how they should rebuild. David says, let that not be. The work of rebuilding is repentance. It's ownership. It is requesting forgiveness. And again, some may need to do this at a distance, respecting boundaries of the one that you've harmed, hurt, or wounded. But there's power in taking ownership and requesting forgiveness. And then humbly taking the steps that you can to rebuild, trusting God to bridge all the gaps. James 4 verse 6 says, but he gives more grace. And therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to those who are humble. Rebuilding is specific to what was done and to whom it was done. Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. James three eighteen says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
Jesus said there's a blessing when we dedicate ourselves to this work that we've we've been speaking about the last number of weeks, which is peacemaking, not peacekeeping. In Christ, victims have a place and a step. Perpetrators have a place and a step. In the past six weeks, we've used chairs as examples of us having a place. Chairs are best, not only facing one another. The chairs are best when you and I are seated at a table. And here's what I know. I used to think the greatest miracle that God ever did was raising himself in Christ from the dead. And I still do. But I also think that there's a greater miracle that I have no idea how God's going to do it. I have no idea how God is going to make us one. But he is. He's going to make us one. Which means that at his table is Matthew and Simon. At his table is Grace and John. At his table is me. And his table is you. Here's why. It ain't my table. It ain't your table. It's not the left's table. It's not the right's table. It's his table. And he gets to choose who gets an invitation to his table. But every single month as a church, whether we are male or female or black or white or any other ethnicity in between, every, and any other thing you want to throw into that mix, every single month when it's non-COVID, now we do it online because of COVID, but you know what we do every month? We celebrate communion. And you know what we do at communion? We remember. We remember that it was his body that was broken so that the things that are unreconciled in our hearts, our lives, our relationships, our families, our world, our city, wherever you want to put it, that those things in Christ we remember, oh yeah, it's not the way of the left and it's not the way of the right. There's actually a different way. It's not my table or your table. It's not where am I have access or where do I don't. It's not only those things. Those are important things, but it's that his table that we are each given an invitation And we remember. And here's what happens when we remember, church. We remember the work of Jesus, not the work of Life Center. And when we remember the work of Jesus, here's what happens. When we remember, we are remembered. Grace with John, Simon with Matthew, we are remembered together Because none of us are at this table on our intellect, our merit, our spiritual disciplines, or our spiritual gifts. Every single one of us come to this table broken, in need of healing, salvation, and grace. And so we partake, remembering all that Jesus has done for us. And we look at our iniquity and our transgression and our sin that every one of us are guilty of. 
but we stop only, or we don't only look there. We look at the Lamb of God who's taken away the sin of the world, and we remember. And in remembering, I also look at someone who makes my blood boil, who is right now maybe unreconciled, this way. And I remember right because of the work of Jesus. We're not actually left right. We're actually not on polar sides. We're brothers and sisters. We're a body and I need you and unfortunately you need me. And we remember and by faith and in Christ, in Christ alone, we are remembered. And when we are remembered together, it's not like everything's fixed. Yay! No, the gospel is not a nursery rhyme, nor is it for the faint of heart. But it is living into a whole other way of life where the impossible can be possible, where the broken can find healing, where the unreconciled can become reconciled, where God still does impossible things. He still heals broken hearts. But it takes all of us, as we've been talking about, to say it's not that you need to become more like me. It's that all of us need to become more like Jesus. And if we will dedicate ourselves to this work, like Matthew did, like Simon did, like Grace did, and like John did, then there's hope for me and there's hope for you that the polarized world, all things, can still be possible. May God bless you.